Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, it's uh, it's Sunday. It's Sunday, Sunday. It's church day. Yeah, right, hopefully the Lord's you're, day. you're with us at church today. Even right now. Even right now. Well, maybe not listening right now. Well, I mean, if you're listening, if you're seeing Pastor PJ preach and you're listening to this, probably would be good to turn it off right. a little bit. Turn one of me off and not the one that's live. Yeah, too many, too many Pastor PJs in your ear. Dude, think about my poor wife. Just hears you all day. She's got me all, all day night. Long. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's Sunday and uh, we're excited. We're happy to be at church this week and uh, looking forward to another great day of worship. So um, yeah, weekend, it, the Cowboys play later on this afternoon. The Cowboys Eagles. So Pastor Rod, as a recent <laughs> Texas transplant, That's right. you need to know that this is one of the most heated rivalries in the sports world. Cowboys and Eagles, huh? Cowboys and Eagles. I don't understand that. It's Philadelphia versus Dallas. Well, that, that I get that part. Right. So, so much why? so that back in the day, they used to pull Philadelphia cream cheese off the shelves when the Cowboys played the Eagles. Well, that's just unnecessary. They would that that's how much people dislike th- these two teams. I really like my Philadelphia cream cheese though. So I'd prefer that we don't do that. I do too, man. I do too. I'm I'm with you on that. But uh, yeah, this is a big rivalry. The uh, the Rangers had their parade uh, this past weekend on Friday and they had the, the Arlington Police Department estimated that there were between 500 and 700,000 people there at this parade. Well, there could have been 507 or 7,004 people if we went, like I suggested. Yeah, but where do you park that? Like, think about those two stadiums, okay? So Jerry World, the, the, the Cowboy Stadium, holds like 80,000 people when it's sold out about. Uh, the Ranger Stadium holds somewhere between 40 and 50,000, so we'll put it on the top end. That's 130,000 people that can park feasibly in those two stadium parking lots. They had almost five times that number of people in that place, like the parking alone, no thanks. I just, no thanks. It's just, it's an historic event though. It is, but so was watching it. Like that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, but you could have lived watching it. it. Yeah. But I'm going to tell your grandkids, Oh son, I wish I would have went. I don't think I will. I, it was the last time they ever won the world. Series. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Hey, (laughs) I'm not a big crowds guy like Disneyland. I've, I've discerned that I can do it occasionally but then i'm I'm done yeah. like one day at disneyland and i'm like i'm done i'm done yeah i i, I enjoy disneyland enough to endure it like going to a, a ball game i'm good with that i can handle that that's three hours of my life i'm there i'm out i'm get, i'm good i can get into the the spirit with the crowds but i just i don't like crowds just for the sake of crowds uh, yeah okay i i i'm I, I, i'm with you on that i just think there are some things that are worth enduring the crowd for yeah i.e a parade that celebrates a once in a lifetime World Series championship. Yeah, but for to what end? Like you have your spot in the parade route and they they drive by and but so then you see the players in the in the you know, they're there and they're shouting at them and then you go home. Yeah. <laughs> you just drive away. Yeah. After look, that's done. You guys know me. I love me some Rangers, but Right. That, that's why I'm so surprised. That's a level that I just was like, no, I'll I'll pass. Wow. I'll pass. Yeah. Crowds. I don't know, man. I'm glad that in heaven we'll be sanctified. And you love uh, crowds. We'll love it. We'll love being with all the people. I mean, I love being with our people at church. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm good with that too. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. But if there wasn't parking and it was jam packed, I might like it less. 
So I'm grateful that at Founders Classical Academy where we meet, there is plenty of parking. There's plenty. Especially because we get there so early. Too. It's, it's helpful. We're like usually the first two cars in the parking lot. Yeah, normally. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. One of my maybe my favorite routines now is developing, and it's going to Rudy's, the gas station barbecue place. Yeah. Picking up uh, one or two of their breakfast bowls. Five eighty nine. You do like that, don't you? I do, man. And yeah. especially, I get, I get a big old honking quart of their green salsa. Ooh. A honking quart. Honking. I mean, that's it's not just a regular quart. It's a honking it quart. Honks. It's that's Texas. Texas quartz. Texas quartz do honk. Well, hey, <laughs> let's jump into uh, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 40, 41 and forty two today, and then Hebrews. A lot of Jeremiah there. Chapter two. Yeah, a lot of Jeremiah. Um, shorter chapters though. Some different things in chapter forty. In fact, this is basically this is just a transitional chapter. This is telling you uh, what's going on from the fall of Jerusalem to what happens to Jeremiah, and that's that's what we're dealing with in chapter forty. It uh, is going to end up that he is going to remain there in uh, in Jerusalem under the the reign or under the rule of this kind of puppet uh, leader that was left in place there, a guy named Gedaliah. And uh, Jeremiah is going to be there, and he is going to interact quite a bit with uh, with him in the next chapter. But chapter forty is basically a transitional chapter, telling us that Jeremiah is staying there in Jerusalem. That's right. Chapter forty one. Then we get into uh, Jeremiah's. Uh, conversation with this guy, Gedaliah. And the, the summary of this is like, here's a guy that's just not getting the message. Um, Gedaliah wants to rebel. Gedaliah wants to disobey. Gedaliah is looking to uh, to get help and to uh, escape from uh, from the situation that is at hand and, and some of the, the, the judgment that he's being uh, subject to. And uh, it doesn't go well for him. In fact, Ishmael, uh, one of the Judeans rises up and strikes down Gedaliah there. Um, and uh, Ishmael uh, is is one of the, the people that had remained in the land. And so it, yeah, not it, a good dude. it creates a, a problem because here was a Babylonian envoy that he, Ishmael, rises up and strikes down. And uh, so now there's the question of, oh, no, what are we going to do? Which leads to this awkward situation where they kind of want to, uh, to turn and go back to Egypt and find help in Egypt. Egypt's still here. Egypt's still on the scene. And that's where chapter 42 comes in is this warning against going down there. Don't go to Egypt. And, and yet the people are, are ultimately not going to listen to Jeremiah. So this, this is really kind of on the ground, more narrative than it is prophetic at this point. Right. And some of these elements about Jeremiah's life are so instructive for us because it shows us that a godly life, as Paul would tell Timothy, is subject to great amounts of difficulty. And I, I think about what the book of Acts tells us. It is with great violence that we enter into the kingdom. There's going to be a million different obstacles, some that you can foretell and forecast and others that you just can't. Yeah. Jeremiah's story is so unpredictably twisty and turny. I mean, every time I read stuff like this, I mean, it's not like I forget Jeremiah, but sometimes I'll read these and, and just be reminded of how much he had to go through to accomplish the work that God had given him. And you would think, I mean, you see elements of the way God preserves him. I appreciate those elements because then it reminds you and assure him, Jeremiah, God's got you. He's going to take care of you. I mean, even the fact that he received such favor from uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, command, commander for Nebuchadnezzar, I think. Yeah. Uh, he's like, hey, man, wherever wherever you want to go. You want to come with me? You want to stay? You want to do whatever you, whatever you want? You let me know. That's amazing. And, yeah. and that's, a great, that's a great sign of God's grace. But stuff like this, where you see... The unfolding narrative. Gedaliah is a part of Jeremiah's experience here. He's trusting God. He's doing what he's called to do. And here goes this this guy, Ishmael, who murders Gedaliah. Shoot, man, what's gonna happen? What yeah. are you, what, God, what are you doing? Right. We're trying to we're trying to preserve your people. We're, I, mean, 
I, I don't know. I, I would be just so flustered if I were Jeremiah saying, God, please give me a, give me a good night's rest. Right. <laughs> give me some non-activity. Help me just to settle down. And how about somebody who would listen to me? <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's the thing about chapter 42 is they, they want Jeremiah to, to help them out here. And they're like, hey, what's going to happen to us? Because uh, we have this guy, Ishmael, and he took out the Babylonian envoy. Like, what what are we going to do here? And they even tell Jeremiah in 42.5, look, we're going to do uh, we're going to do everything that God says to us through you. And so, Jeremiah, what, what should we say, what should we do? And Jeremiah's like, don't go to Egypt. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to go to Egypt. <laughs> we're going to go to Egypt. <laughs> How's that sound? Yeah. I, well, I was so frustrated with them. Their, their posture was so like, oh, whatever you say, you know, the whatever the Lord says, you right. jerks, you liars. Right, right. Just a bunch of hucksters, man. Well, hucksters and or the worldly grief versus the godly grief, right? That's of Second Corinthians 7. I mean, the, this is a people that are feeling it and they're afraid. And I think they're legitimately afraid. I mean, it says that. At the end of chapter 41, it says they're afraid and they want to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. They were afraid of them because Ishmael had killed Gedaliah. So I think there's a legitimate fear here, but it's a worldly fear that's not producing genuine repentance. If this was genuine, they would have told Jeremiah, we'll do what the Lord wants us to do. Jeremiah would have said, stay here. And they would have said, okay. But what reveals that this is not godly grief is they receive the, the instruction from the Lord through Jeremiah and they say, yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to disobey because we don't want to do that. And I think that's instructive for us too. I think sometimes we think, what do, how do I know worldly grief versus godly grief? And as John the Baptist told the Pharisees who were coming out to him to be baptized by him, he said, you want to repent? Fine, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And here the people have a repentant posture when they first approach Jeremiah, but what reveals whether or not that repentance is genuine is their willingness to obey God. And that's true for us too, Christian. If you're repenting from sin, if you're mired in sin or you're coming back or you're feeling conviction, it's one thing to feel the initial sorrow and even to feel an initial fear that, man, God could judge me for my sin. But what bears out whether or not that's a worldly grief versus a, a godly grief is what you do with the corrective, right? We've talked about this recently, Second. Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the word of God is useful for reproving and for correcting. So it's one thing to feel the reproof and the sting of the reproof, but then it's the question, are you willing to pursue the correction and do what we need to do? And that's what godly grief looks like. That's what true repentance should look like in our lives. Right. And that repentance is God were directed. It results in that fruit because the the heart of the repentee is intent on saying, God, I, I messed up right. and I'm going to I'm going to correct this. I want to fix this because I love you. I care for your honor and your glory. So I'll do whatever you want me to do. Right. Right. Well, let's turn to our New Testament reading in Hebrews chapter two. Oh, this is a good one. It is a good one. Man, so much meat in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews two, kind of the summary here, the, the ESV summary is warning against neglecting salvation. And that is certainly there. But I think this chapter is really just dealing with in general, our salvation. He's talking about why we are saved and he's, he's holding up what that looks like. And, and yes, uh, the, we need to be careful not to neglect that. And he opens by saying, look, if they, who ignored the message delivered by angels, well, what was that message? That was the, the law. And if there were consequences for that, remember we talked about that last yesterday's podcast that the, they believed that the angels were the mediator that delivered the law to Moses. So if, if the law, when it was disobeyed, brought consequences, how much more the, the message that's going to be born, that's, that's the, the message provided for us in Christ, there will be an even greater uh, danger if we uh, neglect this great salvation, this greater salvation that we have in Christ. Amen. Verse four, I noticed this. Uh, this is interesting, Pastor Rod. We've talked about the concept of cessationism before. And I, this jumped out to me. And I, I wonder if, if you've observed this before, what your thoughts are. But it says there, this great salvation 
was declared at first by the Lord, attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So he's talking about the early spread of the gospel here, right? Right. And he's saying that God used these signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Spirit distributed by his will to bear witness. But what jumped off the page to me is the past tense there. God bore witness to these things through these elements, which I, I don't think we press too far, but I, I do think it fits the narrative of cessationism that this was for a specific time in the dispensation of the early church where God was doing these things as the church was still in its growth process. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting observation. I'd have to look at the underlying Greek there to really feel confident in my interpretation of that. But that sounds a lot like the book that I read, Walter Chantry's, uh, Chantry's book, Signs of the Apostles. It's a small book, but it's worth picking up if you're curious about uh, a cessationist understanding of the New Testament and the, and the role of gifts. Um, signs of the Apostles is what it's called, and that's largely our position on these things. Mm-hmm. The sign gifts were meant to point to something. The sign gifts were a, a sign, a postmarker to say, this is what's true. This is what you should believe. And, and they become, in effect, an authentication device that God uses to say, these are my people, these are my, my, my official speakers, they, they work on my behalf. And so this is it right here, verse 4, God bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, which is another factor in understanding the gifts. They're distributed according to his will. We don't really have much of a choice. We receive them, uh, but those gifts are, in our estimation, ceased. The sign gifts, that is. Right, right. Let me... Uh, issue a, a mea culpa on this. And Pastor Rod, you brought this up, and I think this is just a helpful uh, observation for us hermeneutically speaking. You mentioned the the underlying Greek word. And so you'll notice the ESV translates that as God bore witness. The word for bore there, which is translated in the past tense here by them, is actually a present active participle. And so if you look at the New American Standard Bible, they'll translate this verse, God also testifying with them. So they put it in the Ah. present tense. He was testifying with them. It's still past because these are things that have already taken place, but it is not a a word that's in the past tense. So there's a good example, church, how somebody can grab a a word and without doing the the depth of the study on it, make a a, a point that the text wasn't ever really intending to make that point. And so this is an example where... If I was to stand up front and preach, hey, this is an example of cessationism, it's not an example of cessationism because that the the, the grammar, the, the text doesn't hold that up upon further evaluation. Put that down at the street level for our people who are listening who are not seminary educated and right. aren't going to do Greek and Hebrew. Does that mean that everyone who wants to understand their Bible rightly should study Greek and Hebrew? Man, I, if if you've got the ability to do that- To I, get the bandwidth? I think that's, that's a great thing to Would do. Would that every man and woman at our church- do Why don't that, we offer right? some Greek and Hebrew classes, bro? How about that? Well, we do have Compass Bible Institute, oh. which is something that our people can take advantage of, compassbibleinstitute.org. And you can take remote classes online uh, from our sending church where they do teach Greek and they do teach, I don't think they've done Hebrew yet, but they've done Greek. I know that for sure. But. Oh, I'd like to maybe do that one. I want to keep my Hebrew skills sharp. You know, that's interesting because the credits also transfer too, right? They do. They transfer to, to multiple institutions. Boyce College, they transfer to Southern Seminary, they transfer to Moody Bible Institute, Bo- uh, Biola. They transfer, I believe, to Masters Midwestern, as well. I think. Midwestern as well. Yeah, yeah. so those tra- those credits are transferable. That's a great yeah. segue, man. That's Even though that's not the right, the right text to preach, that's still preached for something. We want right. you to do CBI if you have the bandwidth. Right. Right. And if that's not you and you don't have that bandwidth, can you still study the word and have confidence? Yes. But that's why we also have recommended there's good resources to have alongside it. A good study Bible 
Is there a good commentary resource is, is good to have on hand? Uh, we've recommended the MacArthur single volume Bible or, right. or uh, the uh, Faith Life Study Bible is helpful. And here's the, a, a good point here. And, and this is something like I was just talking about a mi- few minutes ago. If you're making a point that no one else has ever made, chances are <laughs> you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> I have, wrong. see, just looking at my logos here, I have one, two, I probably have 10, maybe 10 to 12 different study Bibles on my screen right now. Yep. Yep, study Bible's commentary. Yeah, exactly. All, all sorts. Yeah. Anyway, so he goes on from here, and uh, he talks about Christ, and he's exalting Christ and how much better Christ is. And then he talks about this idea that it was fitting for him, verse 10, for whom and by whom all things exist, being Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Pastor Rod, is this implying that Jesus was imperfect prior to the incarnation? That's exactly what it says. Jesus was not example. the God-man. that's another example of what's wrong yeah uh no obviously not we we would we would look to the whole corpus of scripture to say that's that's obviously not what he's saying um so i guess we would have to ask then okay well what is he saying how is jesus made perfect through suffering um and that's the that's the vocabulary that's the wording so take a look at your bible if you don't have it in front of you i'd like for you to see this um, sh- okay, so uh, it's, there's a long sentence, but the, the, the key phrase here is should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, so I, I think the approach to this, the best approach for this is to, to look at the progressive nature of Jesus' life. For 30 some odd years, he lived in relative obscurity, but nonetheless living a perfect life of relative obscurity. It's only in these three years of his active ministry presence that you begin to see him uh, go through these op- this opposition and this different kind of uh, this, this obstacles, as it were, and then, of course, to crescendoing at the cross, his suffering, his suffering for all humanity. In what sense, then, is he made perfect through suffering? And I think the idea here, and Pastor PG, you'll have to definitely chime, chime in on this. Uh, the idea here is that he was made complete, a complete offering, a complete sacrifice. The sacrifice that Jesus offered not only included perfect righteousness, but also perfect atonement, perfect satisfaction of God's righteous wrath. And so I think you would have to say, in some sense, um, Jesus was incomplete until the sacrifice that he atoned for on the cross. It was an incomplete sacrifice or an incomplete offering to God because there needed to be payment for the sin. So the part one is Jesus creates, um, Jesus earns our righteousness by his life. Part two is that Jesus atones for our sin by his death. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, and I, I would agree with you. I think it is understood best as, as complete, and I think that's where he goes with the rest of the chapter two. Uh, look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. There's some of the completion that we're talking about here. The incarnation was necessary. Without the incarnation, without Jesus taking on full humanity, he could not be made like his brothers. He couldn't represent us before the Father. He couldn't, as Pastor Rod was just saying, atone for our sins. And that's why it says up here, uh, he was made complete or made perfect by his suffering. It was that humanity side that allowed him to be that perfect sacrifice. And so he goes on in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to satisfy God's wrath against our sins. If he's not ever incarnate, if he's not ever made flesh, then there is not that represent uh, representative yeah, no substitute. Right. Exactly. He can't take our place if he's not one of us. That's right. And so he had to be made complete in that sense. Amen. That's the salvation. That yeah. 
that's the salvation that we have to be careful not to neglect. And, uh, and that's why th- th- there are warning passages. We're going to hit more of them. In fact, we'll hit more in tomorrow's reading as well, wherein uh, we need to be careful because there are dangers if we neglect, if we don't pay attention to what the scriptures say. So we'll hit on more of those as we go through the book of Hebrews. That's right. Looking forward to it. Catch you guys again tomorrow. See you then. See ya. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast.